Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Happy to be joined today by Josh Blank, research director of the same project. Uh, Good late morning, after morning, Josh. Thanks. Yes, it is. Well, there's a lot on the agenda today in a lot of ways. Um, <laughs> let's start with local developments, I think. Uh, you know, a, a couple of things interesting in the news on, on in Texas government and politics, uh, and then we'll move on to the re-eruption of Donald Trump in the news. Yes. I mean, it was a, it was a shallow eruption in the sense that he's never far yeah, from the say. surface. But nonetheless, we'll get to that in a sec. Um uh, but yesterday, uh, an announcement uh, late yesterday that there would be they were scheduling a gubernatorial debate between Greg Abbott and Beto O'Rourke. The details seem to be moving a little bit. I mean, some of the basics are in place. I think the not entirely confirmed date for the de- the one debate that they are scheduled as of now is September twenty second. Not surprisingly, at University of Texas RGV in Edinburgh. Interesting decision, but there's been a lot of focus on the border area. You know, an easy thing for them, probably, you know, probably among the easier things for them to decide on. I I say that until proven wrong. One of the easier things probably for both sides to agree to. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Showing my age, maybe. Um, You know, a lot of the familiar response here to what seems to me to be a fair, what what should be a, a pretty familiar political play right now. That is... Uh, the Abbott camp is is sort of trying to dig in on just doing one debate. The O'Rourke camp wants more debates. I mean, I think you were mentioning- More town halls, I think. They want three town halls. Yeah, you know, more, you know, and, and even, you know, and I like that because even calling this a debate is kind of yeah silly to, you know, dig uh-huh. up another thing uh-huh. that <laughs> comes say. up every time, right? <laughs> They're not really debates per se. So, you know, and I think you had said you had read in some of the coverage, and I don't think I saw this in the stuff I read, but that that uh, Governor Abbott's political consultant, Dave Carney, was saying, well, we might consider more, left the door open a little bit. I think that's, you know, as we were saying before the podcast, probably pretty unlikely unless something really fundamentally changes in this race. Yeah, I mean, I think even his response was a fair amount of posturing in a way that I think, you know, a political professional does that sort of sets up, well, whatever we decide, it's because we're in an advantageous position. So why would we do anything? And ultimately, that's Right. You know, the underlying strategy here. I mean, there's no reason for Abbott with the lead that he has to give her work more time to there for there to be, you know, the possibility of, you know, unscripted questions or even, you know, more pointed questions from town hall members. And so, you know, you, right. I mean, if you're Abbott, you want to follow the trajectory and, you know, and but but I mean, to your point, I think there is a sort of, you know, this happens all the time. And it's always surprising me but whenever an election comes around, it's like. It's as if the last election or two elections ago never even happened in yeah. some cases. And like, and this is the point. I mean, if it, and I think also pretty clearly in the coverage, point of like this is a pretty long tradition in Texas politics, the Friday night singular debates. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, I, I would probably modify it. It's not, you know, there's, there's a divide between, I mean, the, the, the coverage, you know, within this, you know, usually the first day or two days yeah. of the announcement of a debate like this, it swings back and forth from a certain tone of, yeah, this is what we should – 
consider this news in isolation and then frankly, you know, older, more experienced reporters or commentators go, oh no, this has happened before. And, yeah. you know, so there's like a, well, and I think, you know, you know and, I, and I, you know, the key points here kind of, you know, the first time this happened, as I recall back in the mid 2000s when Perry was governor and running for reelection was, oh, they're doing it on a Friday night of football season. And everybody thinks, you know, that sort of masquerades as, you know, oh, I know Texas, you know, right. high school football night, nobody's going to watch. I mean, and then, yeah, the, the arguing over how many, and, and as you say, I mean, it, it, campaigns make decisions on this, the comparative advantage. And both are, you know, I mean, and ultimately, like, you know, ultimately Abbott doesn't need to agree to, to any more debates than he wants to. And, you know, I think he's shown what he wants to do. And yeah. for O'Rourke at the same time, there's an advantage to saying, look, he doesn't want to debate me. Right, which is and making of, kind of hay out of the fact that you know this is a big state, all these things, and you know, and so both sides have an advantage to play here, and they're playing it, and you know, right. we're kind of paying attention to it this week, but you know, and that and that's you know, I mean, I think that the point about not wanting to appear like they don't want a debate is why Carney is kind yeah. of you know publicly hedging, but not in a big public way. No. It's a way of trying to shape coverage, and right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, and look, I you know one. You know, on the football thing, I, and you know, look, almost everything to be said about this has been said, which is why I don't want to. We have to flag it. We should flag it. But it's a very different media environment than the first time that yeah. you know the incumbent tried to you know deflect attention from the debate by having it on a Friday night during high school football season. You know, in streaming world, you know, it's not as if anybody who wants to see this isn't going to see it. You know, I'm not trying to... And there'll be tons of, you know, coverage of this in other ways. And well, I just don't... I, I think I, it comes out on the wall. And not to show, you know, not to show show my ass here, but I mean, ultimately, I think the fact that it's on a Friday night period is the bigger effect than the fact that it's on Friday night during college, like high school football season. I mean, because yeah. ultimately it's just like, you know, I mean, look, I follow this for a living. Do you think I want to sit down on Friday night and watch this debate? I don't. Absolutely but you will. not. But I will. Okay. <laughs> you know, well, so. but again, probably. You know. I mean, no, I will. I, I will. But I mean, but this is. Yeah. But this is the whole thing. I mean, so I, you know, it kind of is what it is. I mean, generally speaking, I mean, like you know, in the media, you know, we know in politics, when do you dump stuff you want to dump? Well, you dump it on Friday night. And so, yeah. but you're right. I mean, ultimately, at the same time, this isn't like this right. is going to be like people aren't going to have a chance to watch if they don't want to. It's not like the campaigns aren't going to repackage moments from this and put it in ads and put it in web ads. It's yeah. not like there won't be tons of coverage of it. So, yeah, and and we've talked about this. You know. even, the, even that Friday thing, I think, doesn't hold quite as much. Well, as yeah, it because used to. You, I mean, people still do it, but it doesn't work as well as well, it used to. And you know, far fewer than every adult Texan or every registered voter is going to be watching this debate, yeah. regardless of what night it is. What, yeah, whenever they have it. So. So another another local story I wanted to flag that we I, I think came up a little you know came up last week but has been unfolding in an interesting way and that's the uh, the ongoing attention to the Abbott administration's tactic of po- policy <laughs> uh, offering bus rides to migrants that are you know essentially you know awaiting hearings to other parts of the country particularly i mean to washington dc and and then late last week they expanded it to new york and there's been an ongoing kind of running fight for a couple of weeks now between you know in, in public between abbott and the mayors of New York and and Washington DC. Mm-hmm. You know, and then this week, you know, there's more public fighting uh the mayor of New, the relatively new mayor of New York Eric Adams now saying that he wants to bus volunteers to Texas to campaign against the Abbott. Now, you know, that's a pretty gestural 
right. you know, kind of move. But it really underlines the degree to which, you know, this busing thing is something that the, the Abbott campaign is hanging on. You know, it was a real big applause line at the CPAC meeting in Dallas uh, last Abbott spoke last Thursday, right after we did the previous uh, podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, And for people that don't know what I'm talking about, that's the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is put on by the American Conservative Union, I think Matt Schlapp's group. Um, Met in Dallas, Trump spoke. We'll return to that in a minute. But Governor Abbott did an onstage appearance, kind of an interview with, with some folks there, in which, you know, the big applause line he got was when he mentioned the busing, yeah. you know, his busing thing and a couple of, you know, other things related to immigration and border security. So, you know, this is, you know, such a, the busing effort is such a non-policy and so such a purely political gesture. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think it does point to a lot of things that we talk a lot about on this podcast, obviously, you know, the salience of, of immigration and border security to, to Abbott's voting base, you know, their desire to, you know, to keep, to be talking about that and to have press coverage of that, other than other things that are not breaking the Abbott administration and the Abbott campaign's way, like Uvalde and uh, uh, abortion, et cetera, other things that are contenders from a Democratic perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's also really, I mean, I, you know, the, the purely gestural nature of this is really pretty striking because there's really, I mean, and I don't think the, the governor has really even, or his defenders have even tried. It's yeah. one of those things that reminds me of, uh, you're going to laugh at this. It okay. reminds me Maybe, of, if I, if I know of the Oliver reference. North testifying before the Iran-Contra committee uh-huh. and them trying to, you know, the, the committee members in the Senate trying to hold his feet to the fire. And him saying, well, you know, when we realized we could sell these weapons to the Iranians and then pay and then use that money to help fund the Contras, yeah, it was kind of a neat idea, (laughs) right? Yeah. There's a certain kind of, you know, brazen, like, yeah, in that case it was, yeah, it was illegal, but who cares? Well, I think- In this, it's kind of, you know, this is such a, you know, yeah, this is, you know, purely a- you know, you know, a mischievous gesture that's causing other problems. It's you know, it's almost at the level of of a prank. Yeah, with real human cost to the people. You know, you're you know, you're literally using what? these migrants and using people and causing policy problems for other people. Uh, that's I feel pretty brazen. <laughs> Yeah, well, but I don't know what else to call it. I mean, yeah. call it a lot. I would come up with another a lot of other things to call it, but it really underlines, like, you know, just the latitude that the administration and the Abbott campaign team feels in pursuing this, you know, this kind of agenda in terms of the intersection of. I'm going to say the intersections of policy and politics, but the policy piece is sort of an empty set. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like your analogy, it it probably does sound like a neat idea in the short run and that it does accomplish something. The question is to me, you know, what does it look like in the long run? I mean, they could, you know, if they decide that there eventually becomes some kind of a, a broader cost to this, it's easy enough for them to stop. But, you know, in the short term, I think the politics of this look pretty good for Abbott, to be honest, because really, what do you have? You have, you know mayors from overwhelmingly democratic and generally kind of liberal cities basically saying, you know, we don't want to deal with your problem. And it says, see, right. Exactly. No, I get it. And so, I mean, mean, no, no, I know you get, I'm just saying, so, I mean, I think in the short term, you know, I I think the, the politics of kind of the sniping that's going on, 
you know, probably plays pretty well for Abbott. I think it plays well with his voters. I think it plays well with, you know, let's say the, the, the cable news set. Like, I think it's a good space for him to be in. And probably, you know, and I've said this before, you know, I don't, setting this aside, we're not going to talk about this, but like, you know, whether or not Abbott wants to run for president, I mean, I think one of the advantages that he has had over, and setting aside Trump for a second, but one of the advantages that he maintains over DeSantis is that we, you know, Texas does have a 1200 mile border with Mexico and he can directly do things in the immigration right. space that, that DeSantis can at the same time, because it's such a, you know, a vacuous stunt, really, Yeah. you know, the question becomes, to my mind, you know, d- you know, I think especially locally, do people look at this and see it as that eventually, right? And this is, you know, the state, you know, we've been talking about this, but the state keeps sending more and more money on border security. And eventually, you know, it's sort of like we're kind of getting to the point of like blank check territory for how much the state is going to spend on this stuff. But I mean, just like everything else... You know, if if we were spending eight hundred million dollars, you know, five years or seven years ago, right? And it was this terrible, terrible problem. And now here we are seven years later and we're spending four billion dollars and it's this terrible, terrible problem. It wouldn't be unreasonable for even Texans who are, you know, pretty conservative about, you know, their view on immigration in some way to say, Hey, what are we getting for this money? Right. And if part of what the most visible manifestation of that is, well, we're busing migrants to New York City on a free bus trip. You know, it just doesn't, I just don't think it looks great in the long run. So, but, yeah, there's a certain amount of shiny object to this that, yeah, you know, you, you know you're picking on the big city and guys. I don't, I don't hold and, that strongly, but I do think, yeah. you know, I'm not sure that, you know, again, the neat idea in the moment isn't, you know, in the end, something that they're going to kind of walk back right. from and not walk away from, I mean, I mean, walk back from it, just, just walk away from when it becomes less valuable. Right. And in terms of thinking about what, you know, a response would be to this, I mean, you know, there has been a fig leaf of a policy justification, which is, you know, and, and the, the governor said this directly that, you know, the migrants that are being held in the region are overwhelming local services, local, yeah, you know, resources. And so he says, so we're shipping now, you know, they're shipping, uh, you know, what, 40, 50, 60 people at a time, busloads of people. There haven't been, you know, a thousand buses or anything like this. So, I mean, just to have, but I think you're right. I mean, it, you know, this is, you know, there's a shallow politics to this, but I mean, I think the other thing about this, and this is a good transition to our next topic, is that shallow politics. It might, might, yeah, it might work. I mean, I would just you know, say. Work in the short term until you move on to the next thing. Yeah. And I would say, you know, I don't want to like, I don't want to, you know, I don't know. I don't want to mischaracterize this. And again, I don't even call it a busing policy, you know, but I think there is something of a danger of treating an issue that you unequivocally treat and your voters treat as so serious and so important like a joke yeah and that's the only i mean you know there's just a certain there's well, a certain you know, disconnect and I, there. but i think i think the way that you're talking about it you know i mean look there's a you know it's, it's an open question what the threshold or like a I'm, prank rather i mean yeah just, right what the threshold is going to be i think there's just enough it pushes just enough buttons yeah to probably you know if they were doing it in a vacuum but they're able to pivot to hey we're doing other things as well now none of those things seem all are also i mean the other piece of this is that it's a you know not to talk so much about not not to speak so directly to the seriousness of the problem but it's it's doing something in a context of as we've said on here a lot of times a problem that is proven over a long period of time to be intractable right and so you know almost doing anything it, it almost it almost distracts from the intractability of the problem. Maybe. Now, there's a certain action for action's sake here on top of the prank level, but... Yeah, I mean, the only thing I'd just add is, you know, I think, you know, on an issue that Republicans have such an advantage on, I don't think, you know, you want to play too long in being seen as unserious. Right. 
Right. And that's the only, you know, I think you know, yeah. there, it's, there's such an advantage where, you know, I think a lot of people in Texas, you know, would say a lot of almost all Republicans, a lot of independents and, and not you know insignificant share of Democrats, if they were just voting on the immigration issue, are going to vote for the Republican, whoever they are, because there's so little trust in the Democrats. But if you start to turn it into a prank or you start to mismanage that and as the right. funds go up, there's more scrutiny, more attention you know, ultimately, I think you do create more exposure for yourself. There, I don't think it's determinative. I don't think a bunch of people are going to walk away and say, "You know what? Right. Forget this." But I do think you know you do you do create some you know some potential costs. I think the implication for that is you know you go a couple of rounds with this and then move on. Yeah, I would think so. Right. Yeah. But again, you know that that tactic of doing something that would seem to be you know prankish and not serious, but then moving on has been proven successful by some people, some prominent cases in the political system recently. Well, and in Texas. <laughs> which leads us to the big national political story of the week, which is, you know, the Monday FBI search of parts of Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago property. And we're we're learning more, you know, I mean, this just happened Monday. Yeah. It didn't really even break till Monday afternoon while the search had been underway for several hours, broken by a reporter in Florida, and then sort of transmitted more broadly by Trump himself as he... You know, in Trumpian fashion, tried to kind of define the story with a mm -hmm. a tweet that talked about this as, you know, tyrannical and, you know, unfair and they broke open my safe and, you know, I'm being persecuted, et cetera. Right. You know, and, and to anticipate, you know, a, a broader theme here, because like we're going to talk more about implications than the thing itself. The thing itself is, you know, being beat to death without a whole lot of information. You know, there's more Trump news as we record this on Wednesday morning that's just breaking um, and that is that Trump has taken the fifth in his testimony uh, in New York on Business a whole other legal yeah. matter that has to do with with his financial practices and and valuations of properties valuations of property as represented and, to investors yeah. and others. And that's been going on for quite some time. And uh, you know, he was forced to testify in this after trying to evade that. Um, you know, but on the uh, you know, but going back then to the the fallout from this FBI this FBI search at Mar-a-Lago, it you know it dominated it's it dominated and is dominating the news and is you know leading to all kinds of fallout and and teasing out of the implications. I think you know one of the things you have to notice is that you know thinking about one of the things that we've talked about a lot here. I think it even came up last week. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of where, you know, where Trump is in the Republican universe, where Republican attitudes are towards Trump. I mean, it was a testament to just how differently partisans see Trump and see the world and, you know, what the reflexes still are, particularly among GOP uh, Republican elected officials and, to be fair, Democrats. Yeah, you know, and last week we were reacting to basically sort of this, you know, the, the after some primaries, you know, the, right. the coverage is really focused on this sort of refracted view right. of Trump, Trump power in the party, which is like, right. oh, you know, how successful is he in putting this thumb on the scales in these primaries? But here we have something that's like much more direct, right? Right. And, and we saw, you know, and we got, and, and we got, I think we backed into a measure of that, yeah, right? right? I mean, the response among many GOP leaders was fact, was very fast right. uh, on on Monday on Monday night and then into Tuesday, you know, in a way that re appeared whether it was or wasn't almost reflexive. I mean, there wasn't a lot of evidence that it took that it took a lot of most Republican leaders a lot of time to do the math. Yeah, right. I mean, including people that are you know have been emerging 
tentatively to some degree in recent months as potential rivals to Trump for the for the nomination in 24. So, you know, you top that list with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who, you know, within hours of the operation was slamming the quote unquote raid in his home state as, you know, quote, another escalation in the weaponization of federal agencies against the, the regime's political opponents. Now, you know, a lot ah. of, you know, a lot of language in that, that really, you know, we saw repeat again and again, right? Right. right. Yeah. I mean, we saw, you know, in addition to Ron DeSantis, obviously, if we look to Texas, uh, you know, we saw people like Ted Cruz wrote, you know, several tweets comparing the Biden administration to the Nixon administration. We saw John Cornyn explicitly, you know, endorse. I mean, he, he made clear that he was explicitly endorsing a tweet by minority, minority leader uh, Kevin McCarthy warning uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland to clear his schedule and to, you know, maintain his documents for hearings, assuming the GOP wins control of the House. Right. McCarthy, we should add, you know, bucking for, to go back, pop back to the national, you know, right. really trying to make sure he protects his position and, you know, what looks to be his opportunity to be the next speaker. Right. Um, and that's, you know, I should say, I mean, it's notable that, you know, how quick he was on that, given the fact that, again, you know, the sort of most recent thing that, you know, I would say he's been in the news for sort of his, his appearance in the January 6th hearings, you know, at, you know, again, at the use of the committee making pretty negative statements about Trump's actions around yeah. January 6th. And so, you know, it's, it's not surprising, although yeah, he's, he's hedging himself, certainly, uh, you know, Governor you know, Abbott took a similar approach. He called it next level Nixonian and saying, quote, you know, this weaponizes power to squelch dissent. Yeah, and th there was some odd phrasing in that yeah. Abbott tweet, and I don't want to get too into a textual analysis of a tweet in a in a non-visual <laughs> medium, but yeah. it's worth looking at that tweet. I mean, it, that was one of the tweets that didn't look entirely reflexive; that looked like it was a little bit written by by committee. But you know, and I and, you know, and I think one thing that is you know real you know it's very interesting just how quickly the hyperbolic response to this yeah. caught on among the right. And, and and again, to be uniform about this, the barely concealed glee among Democrats right. and particularly, you know, kind of the MSNBC crowd, you know, kind of left cable, left media about, or, you know, center left, I should say, you know, about this that's, you know, very provocative and given how little we know, probably, you know, pretty over the top. For both sides. You know, yeah. Right. Um, now, you know, I mean, again, I, be careful about false equivalency. I mean, yes, the a characterization on the right that this was, you know, a tyrannical raid is clearly not based in the facts of the situation. You know, there's evidence of, or there seems to be evidence of, you know, the expectation that this was heavily vetted given Justice Department procedure yeah. uh, in the Justice Department probably... This has not been confirmed, but probably up to and including the attorney general. Right. This went before a judge. Right. A judge issued the warrant. Right. You know, so this was, there was a lot of procedure behind this. Now, we're all adults. One might look at procedure, find flaws in, in the procedure. It happens. But this was not. You know, somebody just deciding, okay, it's time to go bust down, well, right. you know, bu bust into Mar-a-Lago and start and and start rummaging through the place. No, I mean, I think if anything, you know, based on both recent history and what we know about the policies of the FBI and the Justice Department, I mean, this was probably a decision taken with a lot of reticence and a lot of vetting because ultimately, I mean, if you kind of take a step back and say, you know, does the FBI want to be doing this? Absolutely not, right? I mean, does the Justice Department want to be involved 
in Donald Trump's business or politics right now? Absolutely not. And truthfully, if you look at the fallout, I mean, like, you know, if you imagine some really amazing cabal and it goes all the way up to Biden and Biden is, you know, is this really like having the effect that you want it to have? Because ultimately it's galvanizing right. the right behind Trump. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, you know, I mean, you know, at, at, at the shallow level of just vying for attention. I mean, you know, Joe Biden was, you know, Having signing the CHIPS Act yesterday and yeah. they're they're trying to take some victory laps and build some momentum after some pretty decent congressional wins and, you know, slightly better economic, you know, they're they're getting a little they're coming out of a hard spot and no, trying I'm sure to guide Biden, media I'm, coverage. This is not really what the Biden after. political team was not happy about this, I'm right. sure. But anyway, um, but that's you know not yeah. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. For you know, you know, for you know, a non-fact based you yeah, know, sure. approach to this, you know, however you parse all that out, once again, all eyes in the political in the American political world are on Trump, on his past, on his future. Right. You know, there's just a few things to, I think unpack here. I mean, you know, most obviously this illustrates for the umpteenth time just how much gravity Trump still exerts in the political universe. You know, even at a time when we thought, you know, there were people theorizing that that might be receding a little bit. Yeah, or that, you know, other people may be moving. I mean, there's sort of this interest right. in the last couple weeks about other people may be moving into the space a little bit, you know, occupying yeah. a little bit more, you know, Republicans' minds. And again, I think people might have, you know, jumped a little, you know, might have been a little bit hasty. Hasty in that. I mean, are, you know, and we've talked about that. His favorability numbers in Texas, for example, are still pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, think, pretty good among Republicans, put it that well, way. Well, and that's the thing. I think, you know, there's this sort of like, you know, on the one hand, you know, kind of continuous analysis of Trump's impact on the current electoral cycle. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of its own thing relative to, you know, what his prospects are in 2024. You know, right. I think. And I think people are kind of, you know, they're sort of treating them as the same. They're not exactly the same thing. You know, I mean, some other things that I think kind of jump out from this. Yeah. I mean, I said this to you before, but I mean, there's a certain aspect to this where, you know, in the way that we think about things, and if you listen to this, you kind of get a sense of this. It's sort of like in the immediate aftermath, there is sort of a question like, what should I look at here? I mean, what, yeah. how do you contextualize this? And, you know, you brought up one thing. I'll bring up a couple. You know, one thing I'll go back to that you'd already mentioned is, you know, it sort of does illustrate either – and I don't know which, either the political calcula calculation or the lack of political cal calculation that was exerted, especially by Trump's defenders, when so little is known about the underlying rationale for the search warrant. I mean, right, right. now, I think you know, as we're recording this, there's still this sort of question of like, look, you know, Trump's right. lawyers have the search warrant. They could turn it over or, or make it public right. and let people know what this was actually about. And they're choosing not to, at least currently. And I think, you know, if that's the way that they proceed, I think that's, you know, telling in some ways. But ultimately, you know, as we've kind of laid out, nobody who's jumping to Trump's defense doesn't know that, like, you know, what we've kind of talked about, about the underlying yeah. context here about, you know, the vetting that would have to go into this. So on the one hand, you know, there's sort of the, what's amazing is lack of political, you know, calculation. Without knowing exactly what the FBI was doing, you know, the supporters are certainly taking a fairly clear risk that Trump did do something, you know, pretty problematic here, whether legally- Trump or, supporters, Trump yeah. supporters, whether legally or politically, Right. At the same time, there's part of me that kind of has been watching this for and think, well, I don't know. Maybe this is very well politically calculated and it was easy because whatever ends up happening, it's not really going to impact attitudes anyway. And we've kind of seen that to in, the, in our results about January 6th, in our results about, you know, the, the outcome of the 2020 election and whether there was an accurate outcome. Ultimately, nothing has shifted the underlying views as more and more information has come out amongst right. Republicans. So ultimately, the whole, you know, I could shoot somebody in front of Fifth Avenue thing, you know, that just seems to be have been proven more and more accurate. Yeah. And so that may be very calculated. No, I think that's right. And I think that, um, yeah, I mean, at this point, you know, and I get, you know, we should mention, and we haven't, that, 
you know, the prevailing, you know, sort of understanding of this that has been sort of semi-confirmed by at least uh, the Trump lawyers and some of the more right. recent coverage this morning was that this was related to the removal of official documents, records, yeah. some of which might have been, you know, could be classified, classified it, and, and a potential security risk by the Trump, by Donald Trump. Yeah. When he moved out of the White House and into Mar-a-Lago, this is not, you know, the first we've heard of this. There have been meetings. Uh, and as it turns out, the Justice Department representatives, including counterintelligence people, had already met and reviewed yeah, some of the right. documents that they had in their possession. So right. there's not much question about that. And I think in a way that's part of the rationale, it seems to me, for his legal team and legal slash political team not releasing Right. The warrant, just to spell that out, not releasing not releasing the warrant because it enables his supporters to imagine that there's a nefarious purpose instead of a legally laid out. Yeah, I mean, what's the? I mean, what's once we know what the justice? I mean, what the FBI removed, more or less. I mean, ultimately, it sounds to me like at a very basic level, it sounds to me like these were boxes of documents that are not his to possess. Right. And ultimately, the government took them back. Yeah, I mean, kind of at a basic level. Now, are they going to go ahead and charge him with something? From what I understand, you know, under like the presidential, you know, the Records Act, you know, he could be charged with, you know, up to three years in prison. Nobody says, I don't think anybody really suspects that's going to happen right. with just respect to them, like taking the records. But ultimately, I don't think anybody could justifiably say that the government's records that he took and kept in his basement at Mar-a-Lago are his to keep when they're so clearly not. Right. And yeah. And that's by but just anyway. law. Right. So, you know, just some other takeaways, right? I mean, you know, this sort of continues this widespread degra degradation of views towards just American institutions, but especially among, I think, the GOP public and GOP elites, right? It's, this plays on negative attitudes towards the federal government. It plays on ideas about a, a deep state that I think people are very, you know, especially you right. know, elites are very, very clearly highlighting. Uh, and it increases, you know, negative attitudes towards the FBI, actually, which, you know, if you may recall, already had pretty... Uh, negative attitudes among Democrats because yeah. of, you know, their actions going into the 2016 election and, and beyond. And so, you know, it's it's on the one hand, you know, I want to say that I always say this, it's it's playing on attitudes that are already there and it's inflaming them. And it's not right. like this is hard, but it's something this is why I think it also picked up so quickly is because this when it sounds true to people. Yeah. It's easy enough to mobilize that. Well, and it's, you know, I mean, it, it speaks to where we started to some degree and eh? what, you know, we were just talking about, which is that. You know, that degradation of views about American institutions is pretty far advanced. Yeah. I mean, when, to the extent that, you know, the the quick reactions to Trump were not just about Trump, mm -hmm. it was an anticipation of what the context of that response was going to be. You know, again, particularly among Trump supporters and, and you know, the sort of burgeoning, you know, major, you know, sort of major, uh, major elements of the Republican electorate right now. Um you know, and then I think it also, I mean, that feeds into this discussion that we've been having about political violence. We've talked about that polling that we've done in here, you know, more than once. Um, and we have seen, you know, a lot of that in the last 24, 36 hours. You know, I mean, very, very quickly, there were tweets and posts on, on right-wing boards that have been now covered in the in the press and that have been all over the place about, you know, time to lock and load. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea that this was basically an extrajudicial proceeding, which it clearly was not. Right. Right. And so I think, you know, we don't have to, we've talked about it. That gets us, you know, it really keys into that and furthers that in a kind of vicious cycle. You know, you were talking about, you know, this, this is not new. These are pre-existing attitudes, but we're in a real vicious cycle about this right now.
And look, I mean, it underlines the degree to which, you know, that is a symptom of the larger problem here to my mind that, you know, Trump is a corrosive agent in American politics. And, you know, to the extent that that sounds partisan, I say that from an institutional view, not a not a partisan point of view. I, you know, he's cultivated a conspiracy-minded response among both elites and voters alike. I mean, I, you know, I think there's been a, you know, I've been reading, uh, well, I'm not even going to go there, but, uh, you know, you know, the response on right-wing radio and social media was, you know, a renewed parade of calls for civil war, fighting the deep state, et cetera. And it's, you know, I mean, you kind of mentioned the January 6th committee hearings. I mean, we've just gone through some, you know, we're, we're going through a very painstaking process of unpacking the impact of that kind of rhetoric, those movements, and tapping into that as a means of mobilization by mainstream political figures. And, you know, this is moving us, you know, backwards. Now, you know, Trump supporters will say that we have it all backwards, right? That it's the use of the police power of the state against the former president who is likely the preferred candidate of millions of voters that's violating democratic norms and processes. And, you know, look, I mean, that political, you know, there's a kernel of something in there that's fair to consider. Sure. But I think as you implied, I or, you know, we're kind of, yeah, you implied earlier, it's naive to think that this was not part of the calculation on the part of the Justice Department and the FBI. What? You, that, know, you know, what the appearance was going to be and that this was going to be the counter response. But they were kind of in a box on this, I suspect. Well, and this is part of the sort of, you know, I mean, it's sort of like, a, you know, I don't know, a higher order or, or you know, even more abstract degradation of, you know, not only, you know, institutions, but norms, you know, it's sort of like, well, I mean, and I kind of go back again, I'm not, I'm not, ju- I don't know what's in in the boxes. I don't know anything about it. Right. Basically. I mean, what I, what I think is probably true is what I say, which is, you know, they're most likely boxes that are full of documents owned by the federal government. Right. The basics of that, you know, just the, the federal government going back and taking these boxes back. Right. In of itself, you say, okay, is that the, a good rationale to have rhetoric about a civil war, about telling people to, to lock and load, about, you know, even you know, more horrible and more direct, you know, uh, stuff online? And then also elites, you know, really traipsing in rhetoric that touches on a lot of those themes when, again, as you point out, base, watching the January 6th committee hearings, you know, knowing, like, this rhetoric matters, you know? And that's the thing. It's not as though we can say oh, we don't know what's going to happen if people keep saying that, you know, well, the elections are shammed. The fed, you know, the poli- you can't trust the police. The federal you government can't trust is illegitimate. All the federal, these institutions I mean, are inherently corrupt and broken. And also, and also directly, and this is the thing, and, you know, we need to fight. And that's the thing, you go back to CPAC and you're talking about, you know, a conference defined by this idea of like, you know, we're taking, you know, we are in a battle. I mean, you know, yeah. Ted Cruz talks about putting on his breastplate every day and Trump is talking about how great it is for right-wing <laughs> leaders It'd be a big, anyway, right-wing, le- <laughs> right-wing leaders, you know, who are executing drug dealers and how we need to get tougher and all this. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, just, you know, as someone who's kind of sitting here watching this stuff, you know, and just trying to be, you know, unbiased, like, I think people need to be a little bit yeah. more careful. And, you know, something I did, I, you know, in the mailer I sent out last week, um, and for people that aren't on that, you can go to our website. We do a fairly regular mailing, you know, that sometimes touches on stuff in the podcast, sometimes other things just kind of rounds up brings data to bear on on recent events in Texas. But I mean, you know, all of those things you just described have become pretty normalized. Yeah. I mean, to the extent to where, 
you know, Viktor Orban can speak to CPAC, and mm-hmm. this is the Hungarian prime minister who is kind of the avatar of, uh, you know, sort of reactionary ethnic nationalism and authoritarianism within democratic systems right. in Europe. And people, you know, kind of noted it and moved on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Nothing, you know, nothing and, unusual here. Right. Not even and, nothing to see here. Nothing unusual here. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Have a look and Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah, that's who that is. Yeah, yeah you're 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 remembering that, right? That yeah, is who that's that, that guy, guy is. So, you know, I mean, I think we're you know, we're in a uh, all of this puts us in a bad place, you know, <laughs> for all the things yep. we're talking about. You know, back to the more mundane sort of factors of this, you know, before we take off. I mean, I think that to bring it back to what's going on in Texas, you know, the fact that Governor Abbott, Senator Cornyn, Senator Cruz reacted so quickly and in the way they did, you know, really underlines how this is a national problem, but it is manifest in state politics and in governance in the state and in the political environment in the state. So, you know, these larger institutional problems of norms, problems of democratic practice are also our problems. Yeah. Um, Very much. And so we will, you know, we'll continue to keep an eye on this. You know, it'll be interesting to see how much, you know, how long people want to ride this horse. As you say, you know, what else comes out, you know, what else comes out around this? But, uh, you know, I mean, one thing unless I- somebody leaks it, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'll be surprised if we if we see the Trump folks releasing that warrant. Well, and I, you know, the other thing is, you know, this seems like it's going to be another one. I mean, unfortunately, and again, I, and I think, you know, one of the things is like, is the normalization of this kind of stuff is problematic. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say, but like, you know, one of the things that would be nice, but almost very hard to imagine is the FBI or the Justice Department explaining in some kind of satisfying way what it was doing. Yeah. But ultimately that's not really kind of the norm for these sorts of things. No, and, and that's where, you know, the, the the political strategy on the part of Trump and his lawyers, I mean, are no doubt playing on that. Yeah. They as they long as can they don't define it, they the can fact, define it however they want. Right. I mean, you know, Merrick Garland has made a, a point of saying that he is not going to sign off on or make the kind of public pronouncements that say Jim Comey did in a right. political context when he was head of the FBI. So I, you know, they have a structural that that is an advantage that they have here, and I expect them to continue to play that. You know, meanwhile, we will have these themes mobilized in the national consciousness, and it will be interesting to see how how they continue to play out. I mean, to tie it all together a little bit. You know, we were talking about you know what the Abbott campaign is latching on to to try to keep attention away from areas where they are more vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And all things being equal, I think this probably helps them in that effort. I mean, it's not anything they fits the bill engineered, but you know they'll certainly be happy to have some of the other things that have been in the headlines in the state, particularly uh, 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 the continuing fallout from Uvalde. And I should flag, I, I, we haven't even mentioned this. You know, CNN did an hour-long special Sunday night on Uvalde that was. Very negative towards Abbott and in particular towards Steve McCraw. Mm. And, you know, there hasn't been, I haven't seen much discussion of it. And I don't think it's been made, as of now, it hadn't been made available on the internet. Yeah. But um, to be honest, I, they would be fair in feeling like it was a hit job. Okay. There was nothing factually incorrect that I detected in that. Yeah. But the emphasis on using TV conventions on 
repeatedly showing the clip of Abbott's first pronouncements about the police bravery and yeah. heading into the the fire. Um, a lot of, you know, fairly excruciating footage uh, across the first couple of weeks of Steve McCraw and the emerging sort of, you know, how fairly early on, you know, they were blaming local authorities with little discussion of DPS. Um, you know, that is still just brewing out there. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you know, the, you know, from a completely, you know, tactical perspective, it's it's no surprise that the Abbott campaign really wants to not be talking about this anymore and that we'll take anything not to. So with that, we're a little over. Thanks for being here this morning. Uh, thanks to our excellent production team in the audio studio and the liberal arts dev studio at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, they are a, a terrific uh, group of young folks here. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can find all the data we've referenced today, much, much more at the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And we'll be back as soon as we can with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.